Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Hello, this is Dave Williams, the Associate Publisher and Web Director for American Cinematographer. And today I'm joined at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood by Charlie Lieberman, ASC. After earning a BA in Anthropology from Northern Illinois University, Charlie settled in Chicago to pursue a career in still photography. He landed a series of jobs in camera shops and advertising studios before setting out as a freelance photographer. And one of his first assignments was to photograph indigenous cultures in small villages across 14 countries for a series of anthropology books. Returning to Chicago, Charlie displayed his work in a gallery and was subsequently hired as a still photographer on a documentary about Olympic athletes. This first taste of motion picture production prompted Lieberman to change tacks and he began working as a cinematographer in documentary, industrial, and educational films. After shooting his first feature film in 1985, Charlie remained in Chicago, primarily shooting commercials, until 1989 when he relocated to Los Angeles to start a new phase of his career. He subsequently shot such features as South Central in 1992 and Love is a Gun in 1994, and then went on to shoot such network TV series as My So-Called Life, Party of Five, Joan of Arcadia, Once and Again, and Heroes. Charlie has been a member of the ASC since 2008 and is currently the chair of the ASC Photo Gallery Committee, which has successfully staged four shows of still photography done by ASC members, including Charlie's own current stills work. He has also been an active participant in the ASC Masterclass Education Program. Today, of course, we're here to discuss that first feature film that Charlie shot in the fall of 1985. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. The picture was completed in 1986, but only after building an audience on the festival circuit and gaining rave reviews from key film critics was it finally released theatrically in 1990, only to later become a massive success on home video. While this picture had humble beginnings, it stands today as a contemporary horror classic in the company of such films as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, shot by Daniel Pearl, ASC, and Halloween, shot by Dean Cundey, ASC. Directed by John McNaughton and very loosely based on the real-life exploits of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, played in the film by Michael Rooker, and his accomplice Otis Toole, played by Tom Tolles, the film grimly depicts a week in the life of a murderous psychopath. Charlie, thanks for being here today. You've not often discussed the making of this film. Why is that? Uh, I think that's mainly because it's only recently that it's come back into some level of attention. I don't, I don't know why, but this is about the third or fourth time this year that the film has come up. Also, in Masterclass, many of our students have seen it, and they're young, so that they've somehow had to seek it out or heard about it and seen it. I'm finding more have know, know this film is a, one of my credits than two or three years ago in Masterclass, and coming back and saying that when they were film students, this, and these are people in their 40s and 50s, who that film was a huge influence on them. 
Where were you in your career as a Chicago-based cinematographer in about 1985, and how did the script of Henry come to you? How did this project fall onto your lap? I had been making educational, industrial, and documentary films to that point. I had a client who made educational films entirely about drugs and alcohol, and he marketed them himself. He distributed them himself and sold them to churches, AA groups, Al-Anon groups, and he told all of his stories as dramas, which was very unusual for an educational film. Uh, there were no charts, there were no experts. He would tell them as family dramas. And I then absorbed the sense of what is needed to shoot a drama, that you, that you, can, you have masters in coverage and you have camera moves and you tell a story visually. Going back to how I got on Henry, they lost their cinematographer, the, like I think within two weeks of the big scheduled beginning of shooting. They asked around, and somebody passed my name along, and I went and brought my projector and a 16-millimeter print of a half-hour alcohol movie and projected it for them because <laughs> I hadn't even cut a reel. It was never even cut into a reel. And they, okay, you're hired. Now, the original cinematographer had planned to shoot it entirely as a handheld docudrama. And so they, I take the script home and read it, and it's not written as a handheld docu, docudrama. It's written as a straight drama. So I go to see the director for the beginning of prep. I said, I don't see this as all handheld. Uh, I see this as the fly on the wall. And he goes, oh, yeah, I like that, and changed the entire concept of the visuals. He hadn't made a single drama before. So I was applying what I had absorbed, not knowing I'd ever be using it this soon, uh, about drama. And I proceeded to do all the visuals and set all the shots and pretty much determine the entire visual aspect of the film. All I did each night before the next day's work was how is this scene going to be scary? I had no money, so it was a question of how scary can I make it just by thinking about it? So the whole opening of all these gradual seeking shots that I'm hoping the audience is going, oh, please don't look around that corner. Please don't show me what you're going to show me. But of course, you but show me. So that was all thought out to have the entire opening sequence. It starts off on lips. My hope was people thought they were watching a lipstick commercial. And uh, I wanted to startle and make them afraid right at the beginning. And I was just thinking about what would be cool, what I thought would be cool. And it worked out pretty well. You know, pretty much everybody involved in the making of this picture was completely inexperienced. Um, but they were also seemed, you know, I watched uh, the, there was a making of DVD uh, uh, supplemental feature. They also, not only, they all admitted they were incredibly inexperienced, but you could also feel the level of commitment that they had to the project. And mm -hmm. clearly you had as well. Um, is that how you remember it? I mean, there's yes. inexperienced and fumbling, and then there's inexperienced and so committed that they, you, that, that becomes something. It becomes a creative force unto itself. Uh, yeah, I think we worked for, I think we shot for 28 days, and they were pretty much nonstop. 
we just went straight through. We started a movie and worked every day till the movie was done. Um, and in the end, I think we only, after the editor cut it, we only had to shoot four inserts, you know, to make sure the story got told, which was pretty amazing for a bunch of people who knew nothing. Um, there were very few people to have to have it get enthused. I only had a, an assistant camera person about a quarter of the time. I was I loaded the magazines. I was it was film of course, and I was uh, the when we had a shot I couldn't do my own focus. The AD pulled focus on those days. Well, that gets into my next question. You know, um, uh, you know the picture. You know has this very naturalistic style to it, and as you described, you know this fly on the uh, fly on the wall sort of feeling. How much of that was driven by the story and the characters, and how much by the limitations of what you were working with and the limitations of crew, mm-hmm. because. Those practical realities, you're not going to imagine a picture that's, you know, using Steadicam and extensive dolly shots and cranes because you're just not going to have those things. So with your resources, you sort of back into a style sometimes. Yes. The budget limitation created the idea of the entire opening because I was given the limitation that we didn't have the money or time to redress, to do action horror you couldn't see these people killed because we only had one set of clothing and we couldn't clean them up and do another take. So the idea came through that we would shoot these scenes where you're hearing the scene that had occurred. You hear the guns and you hear the screams. And it starts off very quiet in each shot and the sound builds. So it is necessity is the mother of invention. So we couldn't ever do anything twice hardly at all and so we had to come up with a way to make it scary and that was the solution to make the sound carry the horror to how to be scary without violence without seeing the violence only seeing the aftermath and i think it worked um and again that is just a being creative mentally it has nothing to do with the equipment and just an aside here, that's kind of what I wanted to show in Maine, how that your mind is your greatest tool. You could have had the same creative approach shooting in IMAX with a crew of 100 people behind you. Just to be just as scary, mm-hmm. because it's what's around the corner that's the scariest thing. Mm-hmm. And when you get to the goriest picture, which is the woman tied up on the toilet, she that's the most horrifying sound as well so the sound was very important the editor did a fantastic job cutting the sound in one little aside the motel room it was my idea to have the phone ringing which i thought added to the tension i said as i'm we're doing the shot i see the phone and in my mind i'm going and here's how i'm thinking in my mind i'm going it's the front desk asking if they've checked trying to find out if they're still in the room because who would call so so yeah, the phone's ringing. It's the front desk going. You know, it's past checkout time, and they're checked I, out. I, I had all that, and that was my my viewpoint as to what that phone call meant. And I knew as we're creeping around to look in, and that's a dolly shot. And our dolly is a western dolly or a doorway dolly, and we had no ability to go up or down, but we used it a lot. And you you had. What, maybe uh, 20 feet of track or something? No track. No track. It was just rubber, rubber, tire. rubber tires. Rubber tires. Yeah. A pneumatic rubber tires. So they took it, sucked up a, a little of the wobble. 
given the limited budget of the film, was shooting on 16 millimeter the only option? And how did that determination help drive also this sort of documentary, sort of fly in the wall sort of approach? That, that had been determined before I ever came to it because video in those days was pretty lame. You know, didn't, didn't. So 16 millimeter, if you want to make a feature, even a low budget feature was the only route. Well, if they had, you know, any producer at that time, if they had any illusion of getting a theatrical release, you had to shoot on film. Yeah. I mean, distributors just would not look at something shot on anything other than film. Some limited to 35, but 16 was often right. acceptable. Michael Goy also interviewed for the movie and swears I got it because I owned the camera. <laughs> well, that's often the case even today on all kinds of different productions. A cinematographer... You know, can sometimes be chosen for a variety of reasons. Right. What, what kind of camera was it? It was an Aries 16 SR. It was the very first one that came out. I bought it as soon as they hit the marketplace because Eclair NPRs were the documentary camera of choice. And I was holding off and holding off. I don't know why. And then the Aries came out. And I said, okay, now that's the camera I totally understand. And I don't care if I can barely afford it. I'm going to go buy one. I took a loan out. And, uh, Camera. It's a brilliant, brilliant camera. Aeton came later. The Aeton 16 came later. Um, that might have been in competition if they were both on the market at the time. But so I had I came in and had a camera, so that helped save some money because I didn't. They didn't have to go to a rental house. I I could make a deal on that. I'm sure I did. Gave them a great deal. But it was always going to be 16. Now. I don't think Super 16 had yet been coming into fashion. They letterboxed the feature release. Oh, for 185? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, the, when we were making the movie, we thought we were making a straight-to-video. Mm -hmm. uh, after it was cut, the director felt it had come out so well. He's the one who pushed to get it, have, to have a distribution. How was shooting 16 um, an advantage? As you know, as I understand it, um, a lot of the street scenes were stolen without permits. A lot, you know, it was really very much a renegade shoot. All the scenes were stolen without permits, <laughs> well, even on the freeway. And and you know, having a sixteen camera, even back then, people could have it would have flown a little under the radar. Yeah, it was small, light. I think it was even slightly smaller than the Alexa. Uh, it was uh, very, very much under the radar. Uh, we were mostly inside cars. Uh, the shot looking back on the couple the night they're escaping is on the freeway at night, and I'm, I'm we're shooting out of the back of my minivan with the hatch open on the freeway bumper, and Michael is really driving, and we're he's driving bumper to bumper with us until we let it at the end of the scene, and we could hear them because we had an audio feed, and so the sound man was lying on the floor of the back seat. And uh, so I think it was transmitting sound in those days, maybe not. And it faded away, and that was one of the AD focus pulls at the end of that scene. Um, so yeah, we we stole everything. We had no permits, no nothing. So so the size and weight, and ability to squeeze the camera into tight spaces, baby legs, high hats, whatever. And also too, just you know, with no crew essentially. Even just to transport your gear around and set up the next scene, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Sim simplicity again. Well, the, my entire three magazine package with three sets of sticks, 
fit in the back of my Volkswagen Rabbit <laughs> when the seat was folded down. The zoom lens plays a very sort of key role in the photography of this movie. Searching and probing and um, often isolating Henry or revealing an environment around him, starting in a Thai shop. Can you describe sort of the, 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 your approach to that or the motivation behind it or the necessity to do it, things that way? The goal was to do as the least amount of zooming as possible because it just is kind of clunky is the best word I have for it. Draws attention to the filming. One of the reasons I encouraged them not to do handheld was that I thought that drew attention to the filmmaking. You would be in handheld, you can often be, especially in a quiet scene without action, you're very aware of the fact that somebody's holding a camera and it's moving. And at least I, I am. So my goal was to let the actors in the quiet scenes be entirely the subject and to take the audience's mind away from the making of it. And that's one reason I thought it should be shot this other way. The zooming, I was chosen in moments I thought were going to tell the story better. They were all thought out. Very often, the zoom is hidden in a lateral pan. There aren't very many just straight zooms without some lateral movement. And that disguised the zoom. So that it's, it's an attention focuser. You know, it's used in all those, the opening scenes that way. None of them are anything but, you know, they're all panning. None of, I don't think, only one of them, I think, has a moving camera, the one that goes into the bathroom. And the rest are literally all pans, but the zoom is disguised in the pan. Then all of the night work was on primes. I had three or four fast primes in my kit. And so if we shot anything after dark, because the ASA was 100, then I was at a 1.4 with those primes. And there's no zooming with those. You've discussed a little bit about the, the opening scene. And you know the thing um, that always struck me is how clever it was, especially for a low-budget picture, in that it depicts the, you know, the aftermath of Henry's murders and may murder and mayhem um, in this detached tableau style. Um, in a lot of ways, the shots come across as almost like a Ouija crime photo with kind of a little bit of a polish of like a Helmut Newton, you know, especially in that opening shot where the, the woman is dressed in sort of like this, you know, very sort of high gloss makeup, you know, she looks like she was, you know, it, it's, it's disconcerting because at first you're not sure, like you said, exactly what you're looking at and then it's mm -hmm. slowly revealed. But these tableau shots have a little more kind of a commercial sheen to them than the rest of the movie. That was conscious and, and intended that each shot is supposed to start out in a different world than it winds up in. So the very first shot, you start on her lips, and we're on a Dutch head. So the camera's way over on its side, so her lips are right side up to the camera. That is one of the pure pullback zooms. But we're slowly turning level while doing it. And by the time we get out, um, you're supposed to think you're maybe we're starting with a commercial or some beauty shot and winding up with a, a dead woman. The every one of the the following the bottle down the stream was supposed to be uh, you're supposed to see this pristine outdoor landscape, and it's being defiled by a milk bo empty milk bottle. And you're going well. 
and then it takes you to the body. So everything was to take you to, to it, and now you're starting to catch on. You're going to be taken to these horrible places. And that ends with the cigarette butt being put out in a close-up that also pulls back. So it, it ties it visually that they're all pullbacks in some ways, or pans to them. And you don't see, in the diner, you do not see Henry's face. You only see his face when he shuts the car door. Well, and the way that it's constru- the, the, the sequence is constructed, and with it ending with sort of this end to Henry's you know, moment at the diner, I almost feel like these are his memories. These are, these are how he sees those things. And he's like, in a way, like reliving them while sitting there having lunch. That's, it. That's so interesting. I don't know if that was part of the conscious decision-making, but I love that, that you, that's what you took from it is delight. That's fantastic because that's what I was trying to do, to misdirect each of those shots in some way that then turns more horrible. I don't know that I would take credit for exactly what you just said, but in a way, that's what I was working towards, that, that you felt the glossiness. It's a misdirection. I never thought of it as what was in his head as much as what was in his past. But I also knew it was the opening of the movie. And if that didn't get them in the first five minutes, they'd be gone. The audience had to believe what they were seeing. You know, I wanted them to not take, like psycho, people didn't take showers for years. I wanted to, to do that. Your collaboration with Michael Rooker became rather close in what would become known as the home invasion scene. As Henry and uh, Otis use a camcorder to document their murder of an entire family. And the, the way the scene was blocked out and set up, it required Rooker to operate the camera. Can you describe how that scene was devised and executed? We know we have to shoot this scene in one take. There are no cuts in this entire scene. And so I start working with Tommy and Michael uh, to devise the scene. And we have all the cast members there. Uh, and I... Since I was the one who was doing the staging and blocking. So we would go step by step. In working it out, we decided that Michael would begin the scene. We would cut into the scene with Michael's scene as a reflection in a glass wall, a mirrored wall. And uh, he, he is shooting the scene with Otis and the woman. As that scene is progressing, what you don't notice because you're really focused on Otis and what he's doing, Michael steps out of his own reflection. It's only two steps. And now you don't see Michael in the glass but at this point, but you hear Michael, and then the, the kid comes in, or the, you know, the husband's already tied up and on the ground, and there's, there's the camera pans to it and all that. Michael did that. I, tr- I told him when to do it and what to do. And then uh, the kid comes in, and the camera is dropped. Literally, when Michael stepped out of his reflection, I took the camera, and it's not dropped. I take it to the ground and bump it, and the video bumps. In fact, I think the camera was slightly broken after that, and it wasn't the same. And I put the Dutch angle in and hold it because nothing's put it, nothing's holding it on this heavy Dutch. So I just go, I wait, bam. So I made it look like the camera got dropped and landed there. And I, in rehearsal, I determined we had worked all this out. Um, as to the points I would take the camera and then I would I practiced that thing once maybe and then we then 
Michael walks back. He just grows out of the frame, and his feet come up, and the, he picks up the camera, and as he's walking out, it's cut. And it's just not pointed hardly at anything at that point. At the I scared myself for having shot that scene. I believe my, my comment was, I think we're all going to hell. I thought we did something a little, I thought we went too far. I, I sincerely did at the time. And I think audiences, but I think if people do walk out of the film, that's the point, that they can't take it anymore. It is, in some ways, probably a, a breaking point for some portion of the audience. And then Otis rewinds it. You discover they've been watching it, which to me, that's just, that's in the script. That is just what makes it even more banal and horrifying, that they are that you've been watching, they've been there the whole time watching themselves. And this is, these are the moments that I thought are brilliant in the, in the story as written that I just, all I had to do is figure out how to shoot that. You know? and, and I had to film the old school way where you do 30 frames a second and you, you do the reestab thing to get the bars out of the picture. You know, it was a four by three TV and you're going to get scan lines, you know, so, but you have to put the scan bar lines just outside, <laughs> called behind the monitor. And uh, so you're seeing it shot in VHS, which is garbage, shot, then re-recorded on film off a pretty junky television that did have color, that the television they stole from the fence. And uh, so that was just pure execution of what was on the page, except for all of the moments we, at, we figured them out that night. You know, it's written home invasion scene. And then at the end of that home invasion scene, it's like, and zoom out to reveal that Otis and Henry are watching it on TV. Well, you know, the scene has what people today would describe as kind of a found footage feel. And, and you know, while that may be familiar to audiences today, that would it was really pretty radical at the time, you know, uh, especially as, you know, home video gear was just becoming widely introduced and, you know, it just wasn't, I had never seen anything quite like that in a movie before. Well, obviously few people had because Roger Ebert got behind it and said, there should be some rating that children should never see a, a movie that children should never see, but there was no rating. Anything above R was porn. And uh, another film came out that year called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. And those were the two films that changed the rating system. Because Roger, who's pretty midstream critic, decided that to take a stand for these two films, um, which we were amazed. Uh, and the Greenaway film I've seen, and yeah, it's, it's a movie children shouldn't see. Yeah. So that's what this felt like. Um, I would say the home invasion is the one scene that is genuinely disturbing. There are others. <laughs> That's the worst one. It's it's the worst one. It's the worst of a bad bunch. It's the worst one. But yeah, but the, that that's the assignment. Mm -hmm. Make make a really scary film. I bet Arthur Edison was doing very much what I thought what I had to do when he was making Frankenstein. Yeah, I, it was seen as a very macabre and gruesome film yeah, in and, the 30s. And he had a brilliant director um, to do it with, Whale. And so uh, the goal was 
to scare the pants off people. And that was our goal too. Everything, of course, had to be, was up a notch for all the footage that had everyone had seen in the interim of, I don't know, 50 years or 40 years. Well, you know, of all the genres, you know, horror films can be so successfully executed despite having modest budgets. And Henry, Texas Chainsaw, Halloween, um, you know, in fact, they almost seem to benefit from not being overproduced. Yes, because if it was slicker, it wouldn't feel so real. So, and again, a very important thing for young filmmakers is to not try to do more than you can afford. Then the holes begin to show. And if you understand budget, then you design for budget. And I think because of that, I think that's why Henry works so well, because we didn't try to do what we couldn't afford. Uh, it led to, again, some funny moments. When Henry finally uh, does away with um, Otis, in the middle of the scene, he takes his jacket off because we couldn't get blood on the jacket. We wouldn't have been able to do a second take. And so, doom, 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 doom. And Henry's taking his jacket off to go finish Otis off. And it's hysterical when you know that. The only reason he's taking his jacket off is if he got blood on it, there'd be no second take. Which is fascinating and, because and, I'm reading the performance and I'm thinking, look how relaxed he is because yes. he's like taking on, he's like Mr. Rogers taking off his sweater and he's going to go right to work. Necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> and in a way, it also puts this pause, another pregnant pause in, in the action. Uh, that was one scene we were able to do live bloodbaths, you know, and, and the killing the fence. There were very few of those scenes in the movie. But now we're not in history, we're in reality. So all the money for any blood bag work or any action violence was pushed into the later parts of the movie. Very specific demarcation there. You know, some years ago, I interviewed Harris Sabides about his work in, in Zodiac, uh, another entry in the serial killer subgenre. And he was very clear about of the fact that the subject matter was very disturbing to him personally, especially the recreation of a particular murder scene. And it was in part because it was his job to make it look cinematic, make it look cosmetically beautiful for the audience, make it look enticing. Um, did you have at the time, or do you have today, any feelings along those lines? Well, yeah, yeah my job... I, I didn't have the budget to make it look slickly cinematic so i but my job was to make it believable and to tell the story visually again this was somewhat unconscious these are words i've learned since to describe what a dp does and what a director does to use the camera in a way that told the story effectively because in henry very much where the camera's looking doing zooming dallying is integral to the way the story is told. Shot size. Um, a lot of people have brought up the kitchen scene with Becky, which is the, the, I think it's the apex dramatic scene of the movie and that it determines the attraction for Becky. Well, and her fate. And well, which leads to her fate. But there, there are two points where I felt the script had an incredible opportunity to make the audience question their own values. And that was one of them. You started to have 
an idea in, and this is, I attribute this to Richard Fire. You started to have sympathy for Henry for the first time. And that to me was to put big question marks in people's head. The other point where this was very important was when Henry goes to get cigarettes and Otis is left with Becky in the apartment and Otis has been drinking. And while Henry's away, the audience knows she's being raped and strangled, but Henry doesn't. The audience is supposed to really be compromised that they want Henry to get back in time to save Becky. And yet they're rooting for a man to go kill somebody else. So that to me is, again, one of the brilliances of the film, you know, the, one of the moments that is, I really hoped everyone who sees, saw the movie would wonder why they're rooting now for Henry to get back to save Beck. Well, how do, uh, you know, how do you feel, you know, today talking about the picture and, you know, revisiting it, as you said, you know, somehow, um, you know, here in, uh, you know, 2018, there's this a new renaissance about <laughs> this, this movie that, you know, um, by all accounts, um, should not exist. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of ways. In a word, <laughs> amused. Uh huh. In a word, um, that I guess it's. I find it very amusing that what we set out to do is succeeded. Um, every project I've ever worked on, the goal was to do the best version of what was given to me at the budget that was also laid in front of me, and I'm find I'm prouder of it now than I think I was back when I saw it at the New Art. Uh, I think, the, the, I would say, I think I heard somewhere that the walkout rate is about 10%. Still? Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I don't know when I heard this. <laughs> but people walked out. I don't remember when they walked out, but I, I watched it. I, was, I had trepidation that the, that at 16 millimeter was not going to look good. It's going to be all grain and golf ball grain. Mm-hmm. But your eye adjusts it starts out knowing that I'd only seen it in video before uh, or on editing machines. Uh, when I first looked at it, I went like this. But then within five minutes, you adapt to that visual. And so I, I guess I've always had some pride in it on what we were able to accomplish for no money. But in, in, I'm, I guess I'm having more now because it, it's lasted. Most films of, in that budget level evaporate. This is 30 years later since it debuted in L.A. Well, thank you for being here today, Charlie, and uh, talking with us. And um, just really appreciate uh, you sitting down. It's been a pleasure. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging on to theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.